It's good to see you all this morning. This morning, uh, we're going to take a look at one of the Psalms of David. And I still have every intention of continuing the book of John, but it kind of works out a little bit better if we wait one more week. It'll line up with Palm Sunday. So we're going we're gonna to wait till next week to start back in the book of John. Um, so we're going to look at Psalm 4 this morning. And this Psalm, like many Psalms, uh, was written by King David. We can read about King David's life in First and Second Samuel. And we see there that there were a lot of, there were a lot of ups and downs in David's life. Um, scholars believe that he was on the run from Saul for about seven years of his life. Um, and, and this psalm that we're about to look at, um, he was actually on the run from his son Absalom. Um, so he's on the run a lot in his life. It's not, it, like I said, there's a lot of ups and downs in King David's life. And if we look at 2 Samuel, we see there's a lot of turmoil actually in David's family as well. Um, one of David's sons rapes his half-sister. And then her brother, Absalom, one of David's, also one of David's sons, takes revenge and he kills that brother. And between the rape and the murder, actually two years pass. And David doesn't really take any action. He gets angry, it says, but he doesn't really do anything. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hand, and he kills Amnon, the name, that's the name of the brother, the, the brother who has committed this terrible sin. And so David kind of, sorry, after this happens, Another four years passes. And again, David doesn't really do anything. He kind of just lets things be. And then, boom, the next thing you know, Absalom is trying to usurp the throne of his father, David. And David is on the run again. And so that's where we are in this psalm. And this is the, this is the whole background of this psalm. So many scholars also connect Psalm 3 with Psalm 4. So I want to just quickly look at Psalm 3. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you also can. It says, O Lord, how many are our foes? How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So I'll just stop here for a minute. And I'd like you to put your thumb in Psalm 3 if you're there right now and, and turn with me to 2 Samuel 16. I want to look exactly at... What's going on here? Uh, what is happening to David? David has just learned that Absalom has conspired against him. And Absalom has, over the course of four years, 2 Samuel tells us, over the course of four years, he's actually stood by the road leading to Jerusalem, by the road leading to the city gate. And he stood there, and whenever he's noticed that someone is about to approach Jerusalem to bring a case or to bring a complaint to David to be judged, he, he, he intervenes first and he tells that person, wait, my, my dad's not going to do anything. There's no one to hear your, your request, your, your complaint. But if I was king, I would make sure justice would be done. And he does this for four years. And, and I don't know how David didn't hear about this. Um, Maybe, maybe he did hear about it, but he didn't choose to take action like he didn't choose to take action when Absalom murdered his, his brother. 
but we don't know that. But we do know that this went on for four years. And at the end of the four years, Absalom follows through with his plan and he takes his father's throne. He's swayed much of Israel over the course of these four years. And so he moves forward with his plan. He has a lot of Israelites on his side. And David flees Jerusalem. And here in 2 Samuel 16, starting in verse 5, it says, When King David came to Bahurim, he's now fleeing Jerusalem. When he came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came out, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So we see the context here. Many of David's people have turned against him. Not that Saul's family wasn't already against him or already unhappy with him. I'm sure they, they already were to begin with. But we see the context of Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So my own people are rising up against me, God, he's saying. And, and saying, you're against me too. So in 2 Samuel 16, one of Saul's relatives is cursing David, throwing rocks at him and his men. And the next, thing, and the, and the next verse one of David's men says to David, because he has an army with him and there's one man throwing rocks, he says to David, should I just go and cut off his head? He shouldn't be slandering you like this. But David actually lets it continue. And so the cursing and the stone throwing continue for we don't know how long. It says that they reached the Jordan River and found refreshment. It had stopped by then, but Obviously, it had gone on for a long time. And so in Psalm 3, we, say, we see him reflecting on this, uh, on people turning against him, his own people. And then, and then he says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So obviously this psalm, and I think a lot of psalms, is written about an experience that has already occurred. David was feeling down. He's just had rocks thrown at him. He's been cursed at. And so he goes to the Lord afterwards. Maybe that evening he goes to pray. And he cries aloud to the Lord, what's going on? And we read in the psalm, God answers him. Something to note that if you are a believer here today, you have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in us. We are all temples of the Holy Spirit. And we are able to commune with God because of what Jesus has done. 
And David was the king of Israel. He had special privilege as king. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would only indwell certain individuals, but it was a limited indwelling. That's why David asked God in Psalm 51.11, he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It was possible that the Holy Spirit could leave. And, and 1 Samuel 16.14 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord left Saul, King Saul. Joshua also had the Spirit of the Lord on him. In Judges, it tells us that. So certain people had the Spirit of the Lord indwelling in them. But all this to say that in, in Old Testament times, certain people could commune directly with God. And King David was one of those people. And so when David says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me directly from his holy hill, David must have heard an answer directly from God. Something that he says gave him confidence. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, he says, who have set themselves against me all around. And then in verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Maybe this is even what David cried out to God on that holy hill that he, he just told us about in verses 7 and 8. Poetry is not always linear. It can go back and forth. And David has constructed this poem to end with a plea, but it also expresses his confidence in the Lord. You strike all the enemies. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he says. Your blessing be on your people. He says, David is not only concerned with his own life, but he's deeply concerned about his country and his people because his son has taken over. And so I mentioned earlier, many scholars connect this psalm, Psalm 3, with Psalm 4, which is our main text this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, look over at Psalm 4, and I'll start in verse 1. It says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have, relief, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It seems, it seems really bold for David to make that first statement, to say that first line. Kind of like, arise, O Lord. It sounds almost demanding. Answer me. But this is not the tone of this psalm at all. This is not the tone of David in either psalm. In fact, in Psalm 3 or Psalm 4. In fact, Psalm 4, this psalm, was written to be sung and played by the musicians in the temple. So David begins this song, which is also a prayer. He begins with an invocation. An invocation is just a fancy way to say an opening prayer or the opening of a prayer. And an invocation focuses on asking God to do something. Um, to be a blessing or for God to be present or for God to hear. And an invocation is not about cajoling God. It's not about demanding something from him. It's about coming to him in humility and in submission and asking him and recognizing our need for him. So verse 1 is, is less answer me and it's more I need you to answer me. 
I need you, God. You are the God of my righteousness, he says. So answer me when I call, he says, O God of my righteousness. David knows that God is good. He knows that God is righteous. In plain English, God is right. He's accurate. He's just. And David knows that if he follows God, if his steps are directed by God, God will lead him to righteousness because he is righteousness. He is right. He is just. He is good. So this is how David can say, O God of my righteousness, because God is the one who leads him to righteousness. And in Psalm 37, I don't have this up there, up there, but Psalm 37, David says, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. So David knows this. He knows that his steps are directed by God. And, and he directs the steps of the godly, not because they are already godly, but if anyone submits to the Lord and humbly allows him to direct their steps, God will lead them to righteousness, to godliness. And godliness is just another way of saying being obedient to God and his ways. So answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer, he says. You have given me relief when I was in distress. You have been gracious to me on, up till now, is what he's saying. I know you haven't brought me to this point, only to abandon me now. Please continue to show me grace, is what David is saying. This is still the invocation. This is the, the, the opening plea. And then in verse 2, David directs his attention to the men who have turned against him. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? How long, David asks. Thirty years earlier, he was on the run from Saul, and it was, it was not a short run. He was hiding for seven years. We don't know how long he's been on the run from Absalom at this point, but he's in a similar situation. How long? And I think when we find ourselves in stressful situations, when we find ourselves in painful circumstances, in distress, we also ask, how long? Um, my wife, who's with me today, she's been suffering from a kind of chronic fatigue for the last five years, and we too have asked, how long? We don't know how long it's going to last. It, it seems to keep going. So in this case, David's distress is people. How long will you slander me and enjoy doing it, he says. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? These people are enjoying this. And David's response to these people is verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In other words, I follow the Lord. My path is directed by him, and I'm able to speak with him directly. The God who actually hears me and listens to me. So basically, he's saying, you're in trouble. I have the Lord on my side. And then in verses 4 and 5, David continues to address these men who have been slandering him. And something we should note is that he's not really addressing these men. He's praying. He's asking God for deliverance, but he's also thinking about what he would like to say to them. 
And, and we do this too, right? When we're thinking about what we'd like to say to someone, or maybe we're planning to confront someone, we go over it in our heads. I'd, I need to say this and this and this. And maybe David's doing this in this poetic prayer, which, remember, is actually a song that he wants the temple musicians to sing. So he's not just thinking about himself. He wants other people to, to sing this song, to hear what this song is about. He wants others to hear. So he calls out to God, and in front of God, he's calling out these men that have turned against him. And remember, Absalom is David's son. And after everything that Absalom has done to his father, David still cares about him. In 2 Samuel 18, David's men are about to go out and fight Absalom's army. They're about to, to face off with each other. And in verse 5, David says, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Another translation says, Don't harm the young man Absalom. So he still cares about his son. And actually, David doesn't just say this. It's, it's an order. It's a part of the verse. Uh, sorry, the next part of the verse says, And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So in Psalm 4, we see this care for Absalom and for David's people who have turned against him. He still cares about them. We see this compassion in verse 4 when he offers this advice. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So it's okay to be agitated. It's okay to be frustrated at something or someone. He says, be angry. That's okay. But you're not going to agree with everything I say, David's hinting at. Be angry, and do, but do not sin. You see, Absalom was angry, and then he conspired and plotted against his father, David. I guess he thought his father should have intervened when in that situation with his sister, but he didn't do anything. Um, we don't know that Absalom thought this, but we do know that he was upset, so we can kind of guess that maybe he did. And he was angry, and he let that anger turn into sin. He let bitterness eat away at him, and then he murdered his brother. And maybe his brother deserved to die for what he did, but it wasn't Absalom's responsibility. It wasn't even Absalom's right to do that. God says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay, God says. And Absalom would have known this. He had a good education. He was a prince. He knew one of the Ten Commandments was do not murder. And yet he let his anger turn into sin. And so how do we not let anger turn into sin? How do we avoid sin when we're angry? David's advice to these men in verse 4 is be angry, whoops, I'll go back, be angry and do not sin, ponder in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent, offer right sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. So what does he mean by this? Ponder in your own hearts and be silent. Some translations say meditate in your own hearts. So what kind of pondering or meditation would David be talking about? And I think we can get a hint if we look at another psalm, 
Um, because if we, if we were meditating on the, on the anger, if we were meditating on what <clears throat> the situation is and what we're angry about, excuse me, <clears throat> we would be more angry, right? If we're thinking about what we're angry about, we're getting more angry, we're thinking about revenge. So this isn't what David ta- is talking about. I think what he's talking about is something he mentions in Psalm 63. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. So in Psalm 4, when David is talking about meditating on your bed, this is what he's talking about. Remembering God, meditating on his promises, his trustworthiness, remembering the times that he has delivered David when he has been a help. And in Psalm 4, David doesn't stop there. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Meditate on the goodness of God and remember what he's done for you, how he's, how he's helped you in the past. And then thank him for it. Offer him sacrifices. And then finally, let it rest there. Again, it's okay to be angry, but the way that, the way that, we, the way that we do not allow anger to lead to sin is by trusting God to take care of that thing or that person that we're angry about. To trust in the Lord. Remember, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay We don't have to worry about justice being done because that's God's job. And men, we get so upset sometimes. Um, We think we've got to right the wrong. We've got to be judge, jury, and executioner, right? If someone cuts you off when you're driving or butts in front of you in line, um, whatever it is, you can get angry, but don't pay that person back. Even Jesus teaches us to step back, to turn the other cheek even. And ladies, I see how anger affects you too. You hold on to it as if you're punishing that person somehow. But the only person you're punishing is yourself. Let it go. Trust in the Lord. We need God's word to teach us these things. And we need to not just agree with it, but to live it out. So moving on to the next verse in in Psalm 4, verse 6. It says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And David is most likely referring to the people who have followed him out of Jerusalem, his family, his servants, his ministers and his staff. They're on the run too, just like David. And they're stressed out and they want relief. Um, They want to return to the comfort and the routine of the palace. But David doesn't let their stress affect him which, by the way, is very hard to do. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm surrounded by people that are stressed out, I get stressed out too. And David says in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So we've, we've just read that David has confidence in God to hear him. He remembers that God has given him relief and in distress. And he remembers the times that God has rescued him and, and, he, and that God helps him. He's, he's remembered that and he's put his trust in God. That's why he's offered that 
advice. He's experienced that for himself. He's meditated on the goodness of God in the middle of the night, and his trust is in God. And so his joy comes from the goodness of God. God can be trusted. He is good. And David says that even when people are at their happiest, even when there's nothing to worry about, food and wine abound, there's no need to worry about where the next meal is coming from, or for his leaders, if the country's going to be okay this year, if there's enough harvest for everyone, even when these people he is with are at their happiest, David says he has more joy in his heart than them because of God. And so maybe, maybe he may be on the run from his son. He may be surrounded by people that are tired and stressed out and upset, complaining. But he's able to find joy because he trusts God. And then how does he close? In verse 8 he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. You see, deep joy, deep peace, don't come from good circumstances. They come from trusting God. David can sleep as soundly in the wilderness, on the run from his son, as he can in the palace on a normal day. David understands that his safety is in God's hands wherever he is. Whatever circumstance he's in, and, and this is so counter to our world, isn't it? We think or we're told that we can't be happy, we can't be satisfied, we can't be at peace until we're under the right circumstances, comfortable circumstances. But time and time again, the Word of God teaches us that real peace and joy are possible in any circumstance if we find it in the Lord. The last two Sundays, we've talked about peace, right? And, and last week, we talked, about how, we talked about the full peace that is available to, to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through Christ, we have access to the Father. We can come before God because Jesus is our Redeemer, our Restorer, and our Prince of Peace. He has given us what Adam and Eve had before they sinned, which is communion with God directly. This wasn't possible for everybody before. There was separation. There was a curtain. There was a, a temple, right? Because of sin, we were separated from God. And now we have peace not only with God, but we can have peace with ourselves. We are no longer under sin, under guilt, under shame. We, are, we can have peace with each other as well. Adam and Eve... Their fellowship and their communion was also tainted by sin. But now God has restored that peace. Sin is still around us. This world is still broken. But we have the opportunity to choose peace and to share that peace with the world. The Bible says that we weren't even able to do that before. Romans 7, in Romans 8, sorry, Paul says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So when we were living in sin, when we were choosing ourselves over God, we weren't able to live in peace 
because we weren't able to place our trust in God. Our mind was set on sin. And now in Psalm 4, we can see in this song, this poem, that when we place our trust in God instead of in our circumstances, we find peace. And we talked about that last week as well. We, we don't find peace or hope in this world in what is seen. We find it in what is unseen, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We find hope in what is unseen. Hope, faith, and peace are all connected. Maybe you're thinking, you don't know what I'm going through, or you don't, you don't know what I've been through. And I don't, you're right. But this is what God's word says to us. Peace is a possibility. And not only is peace a possibility, but it's the fruit of trusting and placing our hope in God. So how do we find peace when times are tough? We go to God, right? David shows us this. The authors of the New Testament show us this. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And by yoke, he means teaching. Take my teaching upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching, is easy, and my burden is light. I think a better word for easy here is simple. My, my teaching is simple. It's easy to understand. It's not easy to follow through with without my help, but it's, it's simple to understand, and my burden is light. So we go to God, we go to Jesus, and we trust him. We trust him to help us. And if we don't know how to trust him, we go to him and we ask him to help us, help us to trust him. Um, that's a legitimate prayer. That's an honest prayer. It sounds kind of weird to go to God and say, I need you to help me to trust you. But that is an honest prayer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your offer of peace. We thank you for sending the Prince of Peace, God, to make a way for us to be able to commune with you, to, to partake in your victory over sin, and to be able to find joy and peace. Deep joy and peace are rare in this world, God, and we ask that you would lead us to joy and peace as you lead us to yourself. Thank you for your word that leads us to you. And we pray all this in your name.